I love, I love this church. Every single week I have the privilege of talking to people and hearing stories of how God is just radically changing uh, people's lives. And, and so we're so glad you're here. If you're here for the very first time or uh, if you've been here since day one, uh, I truly, truly believe that uh, you're here for a reason and that God has something incredible for your life. And so um, we are so glad that you're here with us uh, today. It's, you're in the right place and it's a, it's a good thing. So we're kicking off a brand new series. And uh, so as we do, let me ask you a question. What would you do if you only had one month to live? You're like, wow, Donnie, that took a dark turn in a hurry, right? You're like, hey, welcome to Hope. Let's talk about your death, right? Like, like ah, that's fantastic right there. But what would you do if you, if you knew you only had one month left? My guess, right? My guess is that you're, you're probably not spending it at the office. You're not logging extra overtime hours, right? You're probably not going to the DMV or Costco, right? Anywhere where you've got to stand in line for like half of that time. Uh, if you're a student, you're not worried about your, your GPA or taking finals or, or any of those things. In fact, what you're probably doing is you're starting to think about what experiences do I want to experience in this last month and in, in this last short period of time do I have? You're planning trips to Disney or to exotic places. In fact, some of you, your, uh, your, your church attendance would skyrocket if you knew you only had one month to live. You're like, I got a lot of business to deal with uh, between me and Jesus, right? I, I probably need to get to church. Uh, recently, I was binge watching a, a show on Netflix because um, I had nothing else to watch because football season was over. And by the way, who won the Super Bowl? What was that team? The... It's my team. <laughs> it's a team I like. Uh, anyways, I know Mike talked about pride last week, so I'm not prideful. It's not prideful when you win. It's just not. It's not, it's not um, when you win. Anyways, anyways, uh, so I was watching this show, right? I was watching, I was watching this show. And, uh, and the premise of this show is that there's a guy that believes that the world is going to end in eight months. And so he creates his apocalypse, apocalypse, right? Which is basically, it's his bucket list. It's a list of things that he wants to do, that he wants to experience before the world comes to an end. And so he parks his car wherever he wants, right? He doesn't care. He, he buys stuff on, on credit card and racks up all kinds of credit card debt, whatever he wants. He, he's not worried about it. He says what he wants to say and he does what he wants to do. And he is not concerned with the consequences at all because he believes that everything is coming to an end. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should absolutely live that, that way, right, or to that extreme. I'm not suggesting you rack up a credit card debt. I think that would cost us our, our Dave Ramsey partnership, right, if I, if I said that. So I, I'm not suggesting that. But the reality is, right, we know as followers of Jesus, there is a, there's a bigger picture, isn't there? There's a, a bigger plan in place and that we know that the 60, 70, 80-ish years that we have on this planet, that that's not it. We know that there is so much more. We know that we are going to exist eternally in a perfect place, in a perfect state with a perfect God. And what that should do for us is it should give us freedom, shouldn't it? It should help us to begin to prioritize and think about the things that matter most in my life. Let me refine the question that I asked earlier. What would you say if you only had a few hours left to live? I, uh, I found some famous pieces of advice from some uh, classic movies that I thought might help you kind of think through what you would say uh, in that time. So here's, here's the first one. Uh, Andy Dufresne from the, the Shawshank Redemption said, get busy living or get busy dying, right? You're like, oh yeah, that's good, right? I'm, I'm either living or I'm dying and I'm gonna put all my emphasis into, into that. Maybe this one from the, the classic Rocky, until you start believing in yourself, you ain't gonna have a life. You're like, oh yeah. I need to have some confidence, right? I'll believe in myself the way Rocky did. How about Yoda from The Empire Strikes Back, right? 
named must your fear be before banishing you can? I don't even know. I'm not even sure what he's saying, but when you mix the words up like that, it just sounds so cool and intelligent. It's gotta be good. Um, Henry Ducard from Batman Begins, right? He said, men fear most what they cannot see. Right? If you're down to just the last few hours, right, you're not worried about those things. You can probably see a lot more clearly now. William Wallace from Braveheart. We all end up dead. It's just a question of how and why. How many of you want to paint your face, put on a skirt and run around yelling, freedom, right after hearing that? You're like, oh, I'm so into that. That's fantastic. Couple more. Mr. Miyagi, right from the Karate Kid, say, man who catch fly with chopstick accomplish anything. Those are words to live by right there, right? And then the classic Patches O'Houlihan from the, the classic movie Dodgeball. If you can dodge traffic, you can dodge a ball, right? I mean, those are, those are pieces of advice that you shape your life around. I came up with my, uh, my top 10 list of famous last words. If you ever hear these, uh, this is probably the last thing you're ever gonna hear. You could probably add famous last words of a redneck to the end of it, and it, all of them fit in very well. Here's number 10. Nah, these windows are okay to lean on. You don't wanna. Uh, number, number nine, don't worry, it's not that deep. Uh, number eight, my brakes are fine, right? You don't want, you just don't wanna. Number seven, nice doggy. That never turns out well, right? You just, that never. Number six, nah, I don't think we need to go to the hospital. Go to the hospital. Uh, number five, pull the pin and count to what? Yeah, you don't want to hear. Don't want to hear that. Number four, just let it down slowly, right? <laughs> you can imagine where that. Number three, these are the good kind of mushrooms. You just don't want. Number two, I wonder where the mother bear is. That's again, you just don't want to. And then number one, hey, look, a light at the end of the tunnel, right? There's, a, there's like 30 seconds of your life you're never going to get back. I apologize for that, but right, those famous last words. Now. Again, let me ask one more time. If you knew you only had a few hours left, what would you, what would you say? My guess is you're not gonna talk about who's washing the dishes tonight, but you're gonna gather around you the family, the friends, the people that most matter to you, that are most significant in your life. And you're gonna share the things that mean the most to you. That's what we're gonna take a look at in this series. In fact, what we're gonna look at is we're gonna look at Jesus' last words, his last few hours before he went to the cross. And in the book of John, John dedicates some, some time to this, some chapters to this. These are Jesus' pieces of advice. It's Jesus' famous last words. In fact, John said that he wrote this book for a very specific purpose. In John 20, 31, he said this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John said, what I wrote down is so vital. It's so important because what it does is it points back that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of God. And if you believe in him, you will have life in his name. Now, when John wrote this letter, he actually broke it down into three kind of interesting sections, chapters one through 12. So the first little bit more than the first half of the Bible John recounts the first few years of Jesus and his disciples, right? Those few years of ministry. And in that, John talks about a lot of the things that happened. He lists seven miracles that Jesus performed. He lists seven I am statements that Jesus made about himself. That I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so John records these specific moments, these actions, these words, these, these occurrences over those first few years in those first 12 chapters. And then the last three chapters, chapters 19 through 21, covers a span of about a few weeks. And what that covers is, is Jesus' trials, his death, his resurrection, and then his reappearance to his disciples afterwards. But in between, from chapters 13 through 17, 18, 19 a little bit, 
it covers a span of just a few hours. Somewhere in there, John figured it was so significant to write down those last few hours of everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did because those were his final moments. Those were his final words. That is where Jesus shared what was most important to him, to his followers, to his disciples about how they were to live out the mission that he had left for them. And the reality is, is for us a couple thousand years later, the mission is the same. The challenges are the same. The things that we face are still the same. And so what Jesus' words 2,000 years ago to his followers in that moment are, are still important and vital for us to understand and to learn and to follow. And so if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me to uh, John chapter 13. And if uh, you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can follow along. We'll put the words up on the screen or you can uh, download our app and we've got the notes in the app. If you were here last weekend, you know that Mike touched on the story that we're going to look at today. If you weren't at church last weekend, we gave everyone who was here $1 million. And so um, you should come to church every week, you sinners. <laughs> you should, should, should do that. Uh, okay, let me give you the background while you're turning there. John chapter 13. Um, here's Jesus, right? It's Jesus and his 12 closest friends, his 12 closest followers, his disciples, students that were um, watching and listening and doing the things that Jesus was doing. And so they spent about three years together. These guys failed a lot. They got some things right every once in a while. And what we're going to take a look at over these next few weeks, what we're going to take a look at even starting today is, is Jesus is just literally a few minutes away from being betrayed by one of those 12. He's a couple of hours away from being beaten nearly to death and then being hung on a cross and executed in the most painful and humiliating way possible. And so what we see in these, in these few hours is that Jesus gathers his guys together and they celebrate a, another Passover celebration together or, or so they think, right? Because they still don't really have a, a clear understanding of, of what is going to happen. Jesus has been talking about this. He's been setting this up, but they're not quite catching on to what's going on. In fact, as they walk into this room, they're walking into to a celebration of God's temporary grace and forgiveness from when he rescued them out of Egypt thousands of years before. They have no idea that Jesus is about to be the, the permanent sacrifice to provide forgiveness for the entire world. In fact, these guys, as they're sitting in this room, what they're doing is they're, they're arguing they're arguing over which one of them is the greatest, which one of them is the most important, who should be, who should be number one next to Jesus. Because as Jesus' popularity increased, so did their popularity by, by association. And so they're arguing over positions and power and prestige. Jesus is going to show them, though, what real greatness is. John chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, says this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. See, as they gathered for this Passover feast, right, I, I can only imagine that there were a lot of memories going through these 12 men, right? They're, they're thinking back to their childhoods, to their family celebrations, kind of like we do with Thanksgiving or, or Christmas or, or birthdays, things like that. Times where the, the youngest child in the room, right, would ask, what's the significance of this? Why do we eat this meal? Why do we celebrate in this way? Where the father would be reciting the same blessings over and over and over again, year after year after year. In fact, this is the, the third Passover feast that Jesus and his disciples have celebrated together. John talks about all three of them in his book, but this one was a little bit different. This one was a very significant night in the history of the world. In fact, John chapter 13, verse 1, 
is a pivotal verse because in this verse, it looks all the way back to what John had written about previously. And it looks ahead to what Jesus is about to do. It says in this verse that Jesus loved his own, right? In, in that past tense. And when John wrote that, what he's talking about is those first 12 chapters of the ways in which Jesus had loved his disciples, his followers, the ways in which he had provided, the things that he had taught, the ways in which he cared for them, forgave them when they messed up. But then it says that he loved them to the end. This is the introduction to everything that is about to happen. That Jesus loved them all the way through, that he gave all of himself all the way to the cross through his death and through his resurrection. John 13, verse three says this, Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. See, often I think what happens is we have the wrong picture of what being a servant is. You know how you have a, a, you've pictured someone in your mind, maybe like a radio host or, or an author or your favorite musician, right? And then you see their face and you're like, ah, oh, that's, that's weird. That's not what I pictured, right? Like your voice and your head just don't match up. I, I, didn't, I didn't see that kind of together. I, I think that's kind of the perspective that we tend to get about serving others, See, here's what Jesus shows us about what it means to, to be a servant. The first is this, is that servants know who they are. Servants know who they are. See, Jesus had come from God and he was returning to God. Jesus clearly knew who his identity was. He knew what it was, right? He knew he came from the Father. He knew what God thought about him. He knew what God had said about him. And that was the source of Jesus' identity. It wasn't from what others thought about him. It wasn't from what others said about him. There were lots of people that loved Jesus and loved what he said and loved what he did. There were probably even more people that despised Jesus and hated him for what he said and for what he did. But Jesus didn't let those things impact his identity. He knew who he was. His identity didn't come from his career. It didn't come from his accomplishments. It didn't come from a, a bumper sticker that said his kid was smarter than your kid, right? It, it didn't come from any of those sources. See, being a servant takes strength. It takes strength of character and strength of mind and strength of will. Don't misunderstand servanthood as, as weakness because what Jesus shows us is that it actually takes greater strength to serve someone else than it does to, to run an empire. What amazes me in these verses is when it says that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. See, when you, when you take the, the Greek word for all and, and when, you, when you translate that into English, it means all, right? It's, it means the same thing. All things. But think about that just for a second. All things were under Jesus' power. If he knew, right, which he did, he only had a few hours left before he goes to the cross and all things have been placed under his power. Jesus can do anything that he wants to do. And what does he do? He chooses to serve. He chose to serve from the security of knowing who he was. And it goes so much farther than just washing the feet of his disciples, right? He is just hours away from taking this all the way to the cross. It was because he was confident in who he was. He was confident in whose he was. If you're going through an identity crisis, you just don't make a very good servant, do you? Because you're too busy. You're too busy trying to find yourself or trying to prove yourself that you don't have the energy, you don't have the, the time, you don't have the mindset to be giving yourself to others. See, that happens in my life all the time. When I'm not careful, when I let my guard down, Satan will attack and, and, and I, he just makes me insecure about who I am. 
right? And I start to wonder, do people like me, right? Do they like what I do? Am I doing a good enough job? What do other people think about me? And when those insecurities begin to set in, what happens is that I begin to focus on myself. And when I'm focused on myself, I'm not focused on other people. You see, servants know who they are. Here's the second thing that servants know. Servants meet needs. Servants meet needs. They, they don't just think about it. They don't just talk about it. They don't just small group about it, but they actually do something about the needs that they see. So why did Jesus wash the feet of his disciples? You, you see, no one else did. The other 12 guys, when they came into that room, they all looked around at each other and said, I'm, I'm not doing it, right? I'm not the lowest. Remember what they were doing? They were arguing about which one was the greatest. None of them was going to concede and get down on his hands and knees and wash the feet of the other 11. There was too much pride in their hearts, too much pride in their lives. So why did Jesus do it? The answer is simple, because their, their feet were dirty, because they had a need, right? We know that they wore sandals, that they would just walk around on, on dirty, dusty roads. There was animal waste and, and, and they would be sweaty, right? I know some of you, some of you struggling believing uh, in the Bible. I promise you, no guy would have written this if this wasn't true, right? No guy's gonna be like, I know what will convince guys if I talk about a guy washing other guys' feet. We don't do that. Guys' feet are nasty, right? I have, I have seen guys' feet. They smell like death soaked in vinegar, right? It's just terrible. I've seen guys' feet and you're like, dude, you should never wear socks and sandals. And then you look closer and realize that's not socks, that's hair, right? Like that is just, that's just uh, knuckles, it's just terrible. Some of your nails are so sharp, you could open Amazon box with them. You're just like, that is just wrong, right? Moms, I know you're not phased at all by this. You're like, this is, this is no big deal, right? I, I know I have to work to impress you today. You're like washing feet. I've washed much worse, right? I know that. I know. You read Jesus and you're like, Jesus fed 5,000. You're like, yeah, but Jesus didn't have to host the in-laws for Thanksgiving, right? I, I get that. You're like, Jesus removed demons. You're like, I've got a two-year-old. I do that every day before breakfast, right? Like this is not even a, I know I got to work for moms, right? But here's Jesus, right? Jesus gets up and he pours water into a basin and he begins washing his disciples' feet. Now, John doesn't describe the room, but here's what I imagine it's like. Here's these 12 guys, right? They, they kind of come crashing into this room. What we know that they would have done is there would have been probably just a big round table in there. They would recline and lay on their sides. There would have been lots of noise, lots of excitement. It probably smelled like a middle school cabin at camp, right? It was just a crazy environment. And remember, they're arguing. They're arguing about which one is, is the greatest. Kind of like, like sports radio, right? That's all I listen to when I'm driving around the car, sports radio. And it's basically two hours of two guys just arguing back and forth about who's the greatest of, of all time, right? And, and that's what this room is like. They didn't understand yet the measure of greatness that Jesus was about to show them. Jesus is silently just sitting in the background. I, imagine the room. I, again, I, I imagine that as they're, as they're arguing, Jesus gets up. And he walks over and he fills a basin of water. He wraps a towel around his waist. And you can hear the water sloshing as he makes his way back over to his disciples. And he gets down on his hands and knees. And he takes the sandals off of the first disciple and he begins to wash their feet. I bet they're so, so self-involved that, that they don't even notice. They don't even realize what's happening at first. But then one by one, they see what Jesus is doing and they're stopped dead in their conversations. Until probably Peter is the only one left, right? They're still talking and, and until he realizes that the rest of the room is just staring at Jesus. Why did Jesus wash the disciples' feet? The answer is simple. It was just love made practical. What does that mean for us today? The answer is simple to that too. You do something 
to meet someone's need. It's, it's as simple as, as that. Washing feet in Jesus' day, see, we need to understand this. It wasn't a religious ceremony. This was just a, a menial task that you do. Some churches, some churches I know, they have, they have foot washing ceremonies. I remember we took a group of, of high school students to, um, to a, um, on a mission trip uh, several years ago, and it was kind of a work camp. We were working on, on people's homes. We were fixing them up, and, and at the end of the day, we would come back, and we lived in, in a high school. And I remember at the end of day five, right, the camp organizer said, hey, we've got a great idea. Tonight, you're going to wash the feet of your students I was like, that's a terrible idea, right? <laughs> I got down on my hands and knees and I took like the shoes off the first student. As soon as oxygen hit their socks, they disintegrated because they hadn't showered in like five days, right? I'm just like, the, the, the smell was unbelievable. It just like punched you in the throat and you're like, this is, this is the worst idea ever. Now, I'm not saying that foot washing ceremonies are wrong. It's just that they usually miss the point. See, in Jesus' day, this wasn't a ceremony. Washing someone's feet was the same as like washing the dishes or, or taking out the trash. It was just something that needed to be done. It's not a ceremony. It was just simply meeting someone's need. In fact, the definition of humility is to stoop low, to physically put yourself below somebody else. See, don't try to over-spiritualize this. Don't try to turn this somehow into Jesus was washing away their sins by washing their feet. The cross was the place where Jesus washed away the sins of all humanity. This was just Jesus leading by example, confident in who he was, seeing a need and simply doing something about it. See, the reality is, is there are opportunities all around us. The problem is, is that too often our pride gets in the way and we don't see those needs the way Jesus did. Servants know who they are. Servants meet needs. Here's the third one. Servants serve imperfect people because that's really the only kind of people there are, right? Outside of Jesus, that, that's it. Jesus knew who he was, but he also knew who these disciples were. He, he knew their flaws. He wasn't put off by that. He didn't think that he was too good for them. And so what Jesus chose to do is he chose to serve them, right? Think about Jesus as he washed those feet. Imagine what Jesus was thinking, right? As he's listening to these guys argue about their greatness, I love that Jesus didn't get angry. I probably would have gotten angry, right? That's, that's a response that just seems to come natural to me of, whoa, this isn't fair. This isn't right. I shouldn't be doing this. This isn't my place to do this job, right? This is, this is maybe even a little below me. If I'm honest, right, I shouldn't be doing this. Somebody else should be doing this. Jesus doesn't get angry. Jesus doesn't feel sorry for himself. Oh, why do I have to do this? This isn't fair. I shouldn't be the one that's doing this. Why is it always me? How come I'm the one that always has to give? I'm the one that always has to forgive. I'm the one that always has to show these guys how to live. He simply chose to do what needed to be done, whether they deserved it or not, whether they appreciated it or not, whether they understood it or not. You think about some of those disciples sitting in that room, right? Thomas. Later, he'd be tagged as doubting Thomas. Because after Jesus' resurrection, right, Thomas hadn't seen him. He's like, I, I hear you guys say Jesus is alive, but I, until I see him with my own eyes, until I put my hands in those holes in his hands and, and the hole in his eyes, I, I just can't do it. Here's Jesus showing that he loves him by washing his feet. Peter, in just a few minutes, is going to say, Jesus, I would die for you. And then about an hour later, will deny three times that he even knew who Jesus was. And here's Jesus on his hands and knees loving him by washing his feet. Judas. Judas is literally minutes away from betraying him, for selling him out for a bag of money. Judas gets rich. Jesus gets the cross. And here's Jesus on his hands and knees, 
showing how much he loves him by washing his feet. See, Henry Ford said, don't find fault, find a remedy. And that's what Jesus did. So if you think that you're too important to serve or that you deserve someone to serve you, you've, you've missed the point. No matter how important you are, you're never more important than Jesus. And no matter how low you think that person is that you're being asked to serve is, they're never lower than Judas. See, Jesus gives us an example that we can, that we need to follow with everybody that we come in contact with. Skip ahead to verse uh, 12. It says this, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. See, Jesus shows his love by putting it into action. And he asks them, do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand why I did this, guys? Do you understand why I was down on my hands and knees washing each one of your feet? Because there are way easier ways, right, for Jesus to, to tell them that he loved him. Way easier ways probably for Jesus even to show them that he loved them. He easily just could have given a, a gift card to Jerusalem Target, right, and said, just go buy yourself something nice, right? Like there's, there's way easier ways, but that's not what Jesus chose to do. Now, here's the good news. For some of you, you've been freaking out for the last 10 minutes because you've been wondering, like, do we have to really wash people's feet? Like, if I see an usher coming down the, the aisle with a bucket of water, like, I'm out of here, right? I've been planning my escape. I know where I'm, I'm going. No, that's not, that's not what this is. This literally doesn't mean that we have to wash each other's feet. What Jesus is setting for us is an example that, that Jesus took up a, a towel to teach us. See, to refuse to serve others to refuse to humble yourself, no matter how important you are, is placing yourself above Jesus. And what Jesus shows us in this is that he actually removes all of the excuses for us. Because there's times in my life, if I'm honest, right, when, when I have an opportunity to serve somebody that I'm just like, I'm, I'm just too busy. Right? I mean, you just don't understand. I've got a lot going on, right? I've got a, a message to prep for the weekend and, and I've got my family and, and Ty's got baseball and I, I've just got a lot of stuff going on on my plate. I would love to serve you. I would love to help you right now. I'm just a little bit too busy. And yet here's Jesus, right? Just hours before he's gonna go to the cross to save the world. He wasn't too busy to, work, to serve them. Sometimes, if I'm honest, I, I, I just think I'm, I'm too important, right? That's below me. I, I shouldn't have to do that, right? I've paid my dues. That, that's just, or, or for some of us, maybe it's, I, I, own, a, I own my own company, right? I'm, I'm busy. I got a lot going on, right? I, I've got employees underneath me and, and other corporations that are dependent on my products. I, I've got to travel, right? I am just, I'm kind of a big deal and, and I just don't have the capacity to add this in. And, and here's Jesus. Remember, all power was given to him and he chose to serve. If I'm honest, sometimes I, I put conditions on meeting the needs of others. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll help, but, but I only wanna get so dirty, right? There's only so much time that I can put towards this. I'm, I'm only gonna serve you a little bit, right? Within the conditions of what I'm comfortable with. And here's Jesus on his hands and knees, washing between the toes of his disciples. You see, it's these same disciples who would go out, 11 of them anyways, would go out and start the church and they would change history. Verse 15, that word example 
is so powerful, right? When Jesus says, I've, I've set an example for you to follow, what it literally means is it's a picture, right, that of showing someone how something should be done. It was instructions. It was like the little placemat at a restaurant for kids, right, where the picture's already drawn. You just get the crayons and you just get to, to color it in however you want to color it in. You can serve however you want to serve. The picture has been drawn for us. What if those disciples had said, oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for washing my feet. And yeah, great example that you set for us. Hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray about it, Jesus, right? I'm just going to pray about it because we all know that that's Christian talk for I'm not going to do that, right? I'm going to wait for a, a better opportunity or maybe you'll forget that you asked me to do this, right? I'm just going to kind of put it off for a little while. But, but the disciples didn't do that. Peter right, became a missionary in several different places. He wrote two books in the New Testament. John wrote five books in the New Testament. Matthew was a missionary in Iran and, and wrote the book of Matthew. Thomas was a missionary in Iran and Afghanistan. What if those guys had said, ah, Jesus, thanks for the example, but yeah, we're not going to do that. We wouldn't be here today. If... Uh, this week, we don't have time right now to read verses 17 through 33, but um, I would encourage you to do that on your own because Jesus has an interaction with Judas and, and, and Jesus, is, he, he knows that Judas is about to betray him, right? And Jesus makes one last appeal for Judas to, to change his mind, but Judas chooses to say no and he, he decides to walk away, to walk away from Jesus, to walk away from the other 11 disciples. You see, when you're found out by Jesus, you have one of two choices to make. You either open up your heart to him or, or you close it off. See, betrayers are, are hard to spot in our lives. When, when you read those passages, you're, you're going to discover that the other 11 disciples, they thought Judas was going out to serve the poor. They thought he was going out to, to pay for the meal. They thought he was going out to do something noble. They had no idea what Judas was about to do. What do you do with someone who betrays you? The answer is simple, right? You, you love them the way that Jesus loved Judas. See, Jesus accepted him. Even though he knew what he was going to do, what he was minutes away from doing, what Jesus did is he saw him for who he could be, not for his past, not for what he had done, not for his flaws. And Jesus gave him a chance. Jesus never gave up on Judas. Judas gave up on Jesus, but Judas never stopped loving him. And the same is true for us. You see, we understand this. Jesus knew the big picture. Jesus knew what Judas was about to do, and yet he still chose to love him, which removes any excuse for us. We don't know what the big picture is. We don't know how people are going to treat us. We don't know the consequences of decisions. But Jesus set an example for us to do the same. Skip ahead down to, to verse 34 and 35. And in these two verses, John kind of summarizes this whole event, this whole, this whole story. And he says this, this is Jesus talking. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, this really wasn't a, a new commandment because Jesus had already given the great commandment, right, of love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and then love others as you love yourself. Jesus had given that, and so it's, it's not a new commandment necessarily. The, the new part is the, the source and the way in which we are to love others. See, Jesus says, love one another three times in these two verses, and, and he does that for emphasis. He wants us to understand this is a very, very important thing that I'm saying to you. But the key in this phrase are two little words. As I, as I have loved you. See, we're to love each other the way that Jesus has loved us. Now, here's the, here's the bad news. You, you can't do that on your own. 
You, you can't muster up enough love on your own to, to love people the way that Jesus loved us. But it doesn't take us off the hook from loving others. Because here's the good news is that Jesus not only set an example for us, but he's also the source. He's the source of how we love people this way. And so let me, let me give you a way to love people this week as you go about every relationship, whether it's at home or at work or at school with your neighbors, right? Every conversation you have with someone, here's how you can love people like Jesus did. The first is this, is, is L, is that we love without conditions. Is that we love without conditions. Love without conditions understands the difference between what you feel and, and what you do. You see, Jesus commanded them, but, but you can't command an emotion. You can't command a feeling, right? You can't command somebody to feel something and expect them to, to feel that right away. And so what Jesus is commanding from us is an action. You don't have to feel something to be able to do it. I guarantee in just a couple of hours, Jesus didn't feel like going to the cross. In fact, there are plenty of passages that tell us that he was in the garden on his hands and knees, crying out to God, saying, God, if there is any other way, if there is any other way that we can do this, because he knew that in, in just a few hours, he would not only be taking the sin of the entire world upon himself, but the, for the first time ever, that he would be separated from his father. Sweat of blood came out of Jesus. But Jesus finishes that prayer by saying, but not my will, but yours, God. I don't feel like doing this, but I know it's what needs to be done. And so I'm going to do it. So you don't have to feel it to love without conditions. Maybe your spouse has betrayed your trust. You don't have to feel it to love without conditions. Your child that's broken your heart, you love without conditions. A boss that overlooked you, you choose to love without conditions. A friend who lets you down, you choose to love without conditions. See, in, in just a, a few minutes, Jesus is literally going to be spit on on his way to the cross. I can't think of too many things more disgusting than that. And as, as spit was leaving people's lips and, and traveling towards Jesus' face, the phrase, Father, forgive them, was leaving Jesus' lips traveling back in their direction. 1 John 4, verse 7 says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. You see, you simply look for needs and, and, and meet them. They're everywhere. They're all around us. And so how can you love your spouse this way by serving them? How can you love them without conditions this week? How can you love your kids this week without conditions? As you go to work, as you go to school, with your neighbors, with friends, people in your small group, ask this question, what need do they have? Because every single one of us has a need. What need do they have? Here's the second. The O is that you offer what you have. As you offer what you have. See, offering what we have understands there's a difference between can and, and can't. Jesus isn't trying to burden us, right? He's not trying to put more on your plate. He's not trying to ramp up the guilt levels to, to motivate us to do something. What Jesus is saying to us is that you can love this way. Jesus never commands us to do something that he doesn't empower us to do. And so the second question, when you know what the needs are of the people in your life, the second question you ask is, what do I have to offer? So you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be able to solve all of their problems. You don't have to be able to take care of everything on the spot, but you have something that you can offer. 
You can offer to listen. You can offer to care. You can spend time with them. There's got to be something in your life that you can do that can help leverage something in a way that makes their world a little bit better. We love without conditions. We offer what we have. V stands for value others. This one's tough. It's tough because it's easy to love the people who are easy to love, right? We do that all the time. It's tough to love the people in our lives that are tough to love. And already you probably have someone, a picture or a name in your mind, right, of that person in your life. It's just really, really tough to love. Because of my past, because of my prejudices, because of my, my position, right, it's just really hard. We need to get over ourselves. We need to choose to love them. As Jesus washed the feet of Judas, we need to ask ourselves, why aren't they any more important? Right? Why, why, are, why are they less important than I am? And we need to choose to value others the way that Jesus valued others. Who is your one person this week? Here is the last one. The, the E is this. Is, it's really kind of the result is that everyone will know. That everyone will know. Because this proves to the world that Jesus is in us. See, here's the bottom line of this. The world will know what we believe by seeing who we love. Verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, the best way to, to model Jesus to a broken, hurting, lost world is by loving each other the way Jesus did. You wanna reach that family member, you love them sacrificially. You, you wanna reach that person at work or, or school, you put their needs first. You want your neighbor to see Jesus in you, then you serve selflessly. The best way for us to model Jesus' love starts right here. It starts right here in the way that we love each other, that we love without conditions, that we offer what we have, that we value each other. And as a result, everyone will know. See, I, I, think, I think sharing Jesus should be easy for us. I know it's not for most of us sharing Jesus, talking about Jesus with, with people that around us, right? It's not an easy thing to do. It should be. And then I know what's hard about it, right, is, is a lot of the questions that I get is, how do I start the conversation? And what will they think? And, and how will they respond? I, I don't know the answers to those questions, but Jesus actually, I think, kind of answers those questions for us. He says, if you love people, if you love people the way that I, I loved you, if you love and, and serve people in this way, guess what happens? They're actually going to come to you. They're going to ask you What's different in your life? They're gonna want what it is that you have in your life. There's something that you have that is so radically different than everybody else. I need to have that. What is it? You won't have to worry about starting conversations with people because people will come to you because they're gonna see Jesus lived out in the way that we love each other. And you'll simply just have the privilege of sharing Jesus with them. You see, the world will know what we believe by who we love. Imagine what that would look like. In your home, right, at work, at school, with your neighbors and your community, with your friends and your small group, if we chose to love each other the way that Jesus chose to love us, it would change everything. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your incredible love for us. God, we don't deserve it. I, I don't deserve it. And yet you so freely and so graciously gave it to us. You poured it out for us. And you didn't just say that you loved us, but you, you modeled it, you showed it. And over these next few weeks as we lead up to Easter, God, I pray that you help us to understand these truths, that you, you help us to understand the, the things that you said in those final few hours that were some of the most important things that you ever said. And Father, you help us to begin to live those things out in our lives. But it has to start with us understanding this concept of loving others.
And so God, will you help us to put it into practice this week? Help us to love without conditions. Father, help us to, to, to not put conditions on those things, to, to not demand anything in return. Father, help us to offer what we have this week, whatever that is, our time, our talents, our passions, our gifts, whatever it is, God, that we see needs and then we just simply meet them. Father, we help us to value others, whether they deserve it or not, whether they appreciate it or not, whether they understand it or not. And as a result, Father, that everyone will know who you are. Yeah, that's my desire in my life is I want everyone that I come in contact with to know who you are, Jesus. And so may you be so evident in the way that I love others that, that people see you in me. May they see that in our church. And Father, may that have impact and change in our communities and around the world. We love you. We thank you for loving us first. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.